Gresham College presents London Can Take It, Psychological Reactions to Terrorism from the Blitz to Bin Laden by Professor Simon Wesley of the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College, London. Well, we're very pleased to see so many here on such a miserable night. Um, and it's a great pleasure to introduce an old friend of Gresham College, Professor Simon Wesley, who's um, Professor of Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, which is part of King's College, now part of King's College. Um, he's also Director of the Institute of Military Studies at that particular organisation. And um, his main interests have been actually looking after the um, effects of war and battle on servicemen. Um, but um, in the recent years, of course, we realised that we're all in the front line. And in his first of three lectures on the public understanding of psychiatry, he's going to talk about psychological reaction to terrorism um, from the Blitz to Ben Laden. Simon. Well, th thank you very much for that. And um, I noticed the next person in this series is Raj talking about the um, psychiatry of seduction. So everybody who's come for that is going to be deeply disappointed. So, here we go. Now, I don't, this is arguably the most important man in Britain in January 1939. Does anyone know who he is? No, okay. Sorry? No, I, thought, I thought someone had a guess. But anyway, no. His name is uh, General Hastings Ismay, known as Pug for his facial features. This is him after the war. He was the first Secretary General of NATO. But in 1939, he was the Secretary of something called the Committee of Imperial Defence. This was... Um, uh, extremely powerful but not very well-known committee that was the forerunner of our own COBRA or our own uh, J Joint Intelligence Committee now, and it was charged with managing the defence of the realm. And in 1939, they were obviously much concerned with what they already knew to be the forthcoming war. And one of the things that concerned them most was what would be the effect of what was expected to be mass German bombing on Britain's cities. And Pug Ishmay produced a paper, which uh, has been long since available, in which he and his staff estimated that a sustained German attack on London would produce 600,000 dead and 1.2 million wounded. He went on to say that it would be mass panic in the streets, that civilians would spontaneously evacuate and would be refused to come to work, there would be a catastrophic decline in production, and indeed, right at the end, he said, there's every chance that this could cost us the war. And he wasn't alone in that kind of view. Indeed, it's impossible to find anyone in that period who didn't have a similar pessimistic view as to what would be the effect of strategic bombing, beginning with Stanley Baldwin's famous phase in 1932, the bomber will always get through. It was a standard feature of all health, military, and civic planning that the results of strategic bombing would be devastating, both physically, but most of all, psychologically and mentally. Now, of course, the Blitz happened. And the various events or, or the, the, the nightmares of Pug Ishmay and all his staff did not come to pass. So I want to show you a very brief film. Well, it's actually quite a long film. I'm going to show a brief excerpt from a film which is from September 1940 to give you a flavour of, A, what was happening, but also the kind of rhetoric and language of the time. So this is September 1940. It's an old film, so it's a rather grainy uh, thing from the Public Record Office. So we'll have a look at a couple of minutes of it and listen to the, uh, the, the, the speaker. Sound okay. I'm speaking from London. It is late afternoon 
and the people of London are preparing for the night. Everyone is anxious to get home before darkness falls, before our nightly visitors arrive. This is the London rush hour. Many of the people at whom you are looking now are members of the greatest civilian army ever to be assembled. These men and women who have worked all day in offices or in markets are now hurrying home to change into the uniform of their particular service. Well, marvelous. <laughs> well, quite why that has happened, I don't know. But, uh, actually, I do know because I've uh, done something terribly clever. I've forgotten that you have to switch computers on and give them power. So, uh, we'll, yes, hopefully we can. Uh, just talk among yourselves for a second, or I'll tell a few jokes, or tell you a bit about my life story, or something like that. Meanwhile, the cavalry will appear any second now. Yes, I forgot to plug it in, you see, that's, uh, that's what happened. So just give it a second, and it should go straight back in. God, I hate these things. Do you think computers are here to stay? I don't know. Uh, personally, I suspect not. But, oh, God. Now you see, you should change your battery. Uh, now he tells me. I've always thought there actually is a kind of ghostly presence in these machines that uh, is there to upset you and throw you in these things. Okay, there we go. The dusk is deepening. You didn't miss much. Listening crews are posted all the way from the coast to London to pick up the drone of the German planes. Soon the nightly battle of London will be on. This has been a quiet day for us, but it won't be a quiet night. We haven't had a quiet night now for more than five weeks. They'll be over tonight. They'll destroy a few buildings and kill a few people. Probably some of the people you are watching now. Now they're going into the public shelters. This is not a pleasant way to spend the night, but the people accept it as their part in the defense of London. These civilians are good soldiers. Now it's eight o'clock. Jerry is a little bit late tonight. The searchlights are in position. The guns are ready. The People's Army of Volunteers is ready. They are the ones who are really fighting this war. The firemen, the air raid wardens, the ambulance drivers. And there's the wail of the Banshee. The nightly siege of London has begun. The city is dressed for battle. Here they come. Now the searchlights are poking long, white, inquisitive fingers into the blackness of the night.
very young and the very old, with that deep wisdom given only to the very young and the very old, sleep in the shelters. Do you see any signs of fear on these faces? Obviously, that film goes on for much longer, but it's in a very similar vein. You'll recognize it used an American narrator because it was meant for the American market. That's what it was clearly intended for. But notice how the kind of rhetoric and images in the film are completely different to the way in which Pug Ismay had described what was going to happen when he'd written only a year before. Now, how much of that film was something, some of that you sus I suspect are probably staged, some of it clearly wasn't, but how much of it was propaganda and how, of it, how much of it reflected reality? And of course, it wasn't just that this was designed for the overseas market, in fact, the way in which the people at the time also talked about the population's reaction to the Blitz was in fact terribly similar. It wasn't just a language we used for when we uh, sent images to America, it was a language we used among ourselves as well. For example, now we hear, um, there was, uh, as I'll describe, there was an intensive monitoring of civilian morale right through the war. This is uh, a guy called Judge Parker, who was Director General, the Minister of Home Security. And if you think the Americans invented that term, you're wrong. It began in 1940. This is a secret report. He wrote a daily uh, digest of morale, which was presented to the Cabinet on a daily basis. But this is his from October 1940, right at the, heart of, at the height of the Blitz. And he's saying here, you know, little appearance of nervous or physical overstrain. Nothing has affected the unconquerable optimism of the Cockney, nor anything restricted is ready if graveyard humor. So that's the language of the time used in private as well as in um, public discourse. And it's that view of how people behaved and reacted during the Blitz and the Second World War in general that has prevailed. Right at the end, shortly after the end of the war, in, in Richard Tipsman's class, classic uh, Problems of Social Policy, which was one of the great social uh, post-war planners that was the foundations of the welfare state and the kind of uh, social democracy uh, that reigned really from 1945 to the advent of Thatcher. This view developed and became the received wisdom that morale had been maintained during the war because of the equitable sharing of risk and danger and the rise of an egalitarian collectivism, of an informed citizenry standing together against the horrors of war. And that's very much the view that, that um, surfaced and has become the conventional wisdom. Now, of course, like all conventional wisdoms, there are people who have suggested revisionist views, most famous being Angus Calder uh, in his uh, People's War and then in his Myth of the Blitz, who pointed out some of the inconsistencies in this narrative that we tell ourselves. Despite um, uh, you know, the film you saw, there was indeed, after bombing raids, considerable amounts of looting. Delinquency rose during the Blitz. There was uh, considerable, uh, again, reports of defeatism and frequent conversations. People forget strikes continued during the war and often had a deleterious effect on the war effort. You know, rationing was supposed to bring about a kind of collective egalitarian spirit, but if there was, of course, the black market, which is the exact opposite, and some measures of public health declined. So, so, so it uh, happened that when an opportunity arose with the declassification of the files of the Home Intelligence Division, and in particular the Minister of Homeland Security, Home Security as they called it, uh, myself and colleagues in history and political science decided to see what was revealed by these files, which were not the kind of public face of, uh, of the Blitz, what did they say about what had happened and what was the monitoring of public opinion and morale and, of course, psychological disorder, our particular interest, 
together with other known documents and, and the observations of the mass observation movement. You know, Tom Harrison's group that would go and eavesdrop on people in pubs and clubs and so on. And if you think we live in a surveillance society now, you're certainly right, but it was just as bad in 1940. So, Sadly for us, because we expected to you know, come up with a more glamorous and, and, and uh, historical revisionist conclusion, it turns out that on all these secret files said pretty much the same as the public files had well, did as well. Law and order was maintained. There was little evidence of a failure of morale. Judge Parker was able to write in the way that he did on most days of the week. And most important for our story, there was no evidence of the predicted surge in psychiatric casualties that had so worried Pugisme and had led him to believe this could lead to the end of the war effort. This is Belmont Hospital, for example, one of three hospitals taken over by the War Office uh, for civilian psychiatric casualties that were expected to flood out of England. Mill Hill was the, the second, and I've forgotten what the third one was, Banstead. So these big, huge mental hospitals on the edge of, of the city were set aside for civilian casualties. These, of course, did not materialize, and in November 1940, these were handed over to the military to, to be hospitals. And the kind of data that was produced during the time already was speaking to the fact that the anticipated horrors had not happened. We can see in the Lancet at the top there, it says, you can see under Felix Brown, a famous psychotherapist, the swarms of hysterics that were by some expected to follow bombing have not appeared. And then Aubrey Lewis, who was the most famous psychiatrist of the age, who had found uh, the Institute of Psychiatry, where I now work. Here's a, a study he did in 1941 in Wilsdon. After intensive raids, there is a slight increase in the total amount of neurotic illnesses in the affected area, chiefly in those who had been neurotically ill before. So he's saying not only had there been not much rise in sight disorder, it was largely in those who had already been ill. Nothing much then to do with the Blitz. Now, of course, we also found, and there were, exceptions to that uh, general picture. There were, for example, this is the uh, report in 1943 of something known as the Bethnal Tube Tube Disaster. I don't know if people are familiar with this, but this was the, the largest loss of civilian life during the war. Um, 173 people were killed. Um, Bethnal Green uh, Tube has been used as a deep shelter, and uh, an air raid was, uh, was, planned, was anticipated. It didn't actually materialize. And uh, people were moving down into the shelter when a new anti-aircraft gun, it was actually a rocket, started firing. It was a noise that was not familiar to the population. A stampede developed, and 173 people were killed. There's a memorial to those people on the spot now. That, of course, was certainly not released at the time, along with many other episodes that didn't quite fit the picture. In Coventry, in December the 13th, in Belfast, briefly in Birmingham, after heavy raids, there were certainly times when the government was not in control of the city, um, but these were isolated incidents. There was the famous Marston Mutiny, when um, uh, aircraft workers, civilian workers at an RAF base on the south coast, went into the shelters and simply refused to come out. That, of course, was not mentioned in any press, although it was much mentioned in, in the files that, that are now publicly available. But the truth is, these were exceptions. And in general, the kind of, uh, this is again, this is obviously a propaganda picture, as you can see, it's kind of seeing through the blitz or whatever. But nevertheless, it's not an entire lie. And in fact, it's probably not a lie at all, but it conveys a particular picture. And in general, the records of the time do back up uh, the, the, the picture that they, that they put forward. And hence, the official historian of civil defense in 1955 is able to say this. London can take it, became current. There is small doubt that this reflected the reality of the situation. 
Well, fair enough. Fair enough, and that's a particular picture of London during the Blitz, and uh, which I'll come back to slightly at the end to discuss why did that happen. But now let's go forward, and let's go to another episode of terrorist violence in our city. This is, of course, the July the 7th bombings. And what I want to talk about are three things. First, the acute behavioral reactions that people have under extreme pressure. What does that tell us? Second, the psychological reactions that all of us as ordinary citizens have. And third, what are the longer-term consequences and what should we do about them as well? So let's start off then with the acute picture of what happened on July the 7th to those most intimately involved. Now, just as Pug Ishmael believed that the first thing that would happen would be mass panic, evacuation of the city, and civilians running around you know, like headless chickens, that wasn't a phrase he used, but if it had been around, he would have used it. Just as that, that view among emergency planners persists to this day, that people in extremists will behave in a disorganized way and in all sorts of dangerous things will happen. In fact, uh, just as I was writing this talk, this appeared on a BBC website, Again, it's just sort of, you know, the further you're away from, from, from a situation, the more you tend to think that people are panicking. So this is Russian TV reporting panic in London, etc., etc. I don't know about you, but I haven't noticed any of this, and um, it really doesn't seem to me to convey what's happening in London in the last 10 days. But that's the standard view, and the further away you are, the more likely you are to think that that is what's happening. So what actually happened on July the 7th? And let's first of all look at those people most directly affected. I'm not going to go over the events of July 7th, you all know it. I just want to point out this particular chronology just to show just how incredible. This is about the most scary situation we could imagine. You're in a tunnel. Bombs have gone off. The place is filling with smoke. It was actually dust and debris, but at the time people thought it was smoke. They were terrified if they get out, the track's alive. You can't get out to things. And it's 30 minutes before the first emergency services arrive. And people forget that in disasters and traumas, that's always the case. The people who do the rescuing and the life-saving are not the emergency services, they're always the people there. Same happened on 9-11 in New York. There were the whole evacuation of the World Trade Center was self-organized. There were no emergency services on the scene at all. By the time they got there, it was too late. So people had to organize themselves. So what happened on July the 7th? And I'm indebted to my colleague Chris Cocking, who's done a project collecting eyewitness reports directly and through other sources of the kind of narratives that people said on the day as much as he could. So again, here we can see uh, straight away the pack carriage filled with smoke. People panicked immediately. So again, yes, there was a, this is a scary situation. But notice some people on the carriage calmed everyone down. And the eyewitness suggests that this particular period lasted no more than a couple of minutes. Another eyewitness, there was no real panic, but a sense to get out of the station quickly, which is, of course, a pretty sensible thing to want to do. That's not panic, to want to leave this situation. And there was also a remarkable feeling, again, which comes from all these narratives, of unity. You can see here, we're trying to find the best way out of there to reassure each other. One of the things that struck me, it says, one of the moment you're standing around strangers, and the next minute they're the closest, the most important people in your life, that feeling was quite extraordinary. That was from a woman at Russell Square. Cooperation. Many people kept calm and tried to help one another, see if Ed was injured. I was aware of people helping each other. I was being helped myself. This is from a lady who had a traumatic amputation, also at Russell Square. 
passengers with medical experience were found. And of course, that's the other thing that fascinates me. There always are people like that around. And they always say, it was such a it was jolly good luck there was a doctor somewhere. There's always a doctor somewhere. Whenever you've gone on a plane, there's always a doctor. You know, was it good luck that the bus blew up outside BMA House? Well, maybe. Was it good luck that at uh, the London Hospital that day there was a conference of anaesthetists going on? Only too happy to leave a really boring lecture, I'm told, to dash to theatre and do what they like doing best. I think it isn't. I think you can rely on the fact there will always be people around who can do these kind of things and who will do those kind of things. And all of this says allowing the medical guys to enter the other train. That's not the ambulance service. Those are the passengers. So we see then... Sorry, I didn't mean to jump on there. So what we see then in the acute situation is what always emerges always surprises those who haven't thought about this very much, but there's a way in which people actually very rapidly organize, help, rescue, and cooperate long before the trained professionals arrive. Now, that's a thing, of course, I don't suppose there's anyone in, in, in this audience who, who's had that experience or was there, but we are all, I think many of us, will, will have been in London at the time and will perhaps remember this. And what we're talking about now as the social and psychological reactions of the rest of us, ordinary Londoners, there on July the 7th. Now, we set up a study with the Health Protection Agency, and about seven days after the bombings, we interviewed a random sample over a 1,000 completely normal random Londoners. So these are not people who'd been involved in the incident themselves. This could have been me or you, uh, chosen purely at random by random digit dialing. And we were looking at the psychological and behavioral responses of ordinary people straight after a big event like July the 7th. Now, the questions we chose, um, they're not the greatest questions, but I'll tell you why we chose them in a minute. But uh, here we see 25% of ordinary people, yes, they certainly reported feeling upset. Other symptoms, poor memories, sleep, concentration, and so on, reported by not that great a proportion, although when you amplify this by 6 million Londoners, that's a lot of people having forms of distress, feeling unhappy, nervous, worried, irritable, whatever. And indeed, we specifically looked at travel anxiety, and in fact, we asked about when the tube is running, because it wasn't running at that time. You can see a great deal of anxiety about uh, safety on the tube. Again, nothing particularly surprising or alarming in that, but a lot of people nervous about public transport when the system resumed. Um, those who were more distressed, it's fairly predictable if you do the kind of work I do, but I just point out a couple of things. Uh, people uh, who indicated they were Muslims were much more likely to be distressed by the events of July the 7th. Those who were unsure about the safety of others were more likely to be distressed. I'll come back to that. And those who said that they'd previously had experience of terrorism, well, we didn't really elaborate on what that was, so I'm not quite sure what that means. Perhaps they were in London during the IRA campaign, I don't know. They were less distressed, so those who had previous experience were less distressed. None of that particularly surprising. And if we compare with the reactions on September the 11th, and the reason why we chose the questions we did was because they are identical to those used by American colleagues who had done an identical study in New York City seven days after September the 11th. And if we compare the two, blue being New York, yellow being London, and of course the, the two events are not directly comparable, it's a much more massive public event in New York, so it's not surprising that, the, that they had rather a bit more symptoms than we did, but nevertheless the pattern of the symptoms very similar, a lot of distress around, still the majority of the population not reporting 
uh, psychological symptoms. So that's a direct comparison of the two. Now, what can we expect? We can expect that that distress will reduce. The normal history of psychological upset, trauma, and so on, is it starts high, and with the passage of time, time being the great healer, it will go down. And that's exactly what we found. We interviewed the same 1,000 people. Well, we found about 700 of them six months later. And what you can see, as you'd imagine, only 30% of people reported originally being completely not bothered by the events of July the 7th. Six months later, that figure had doubled. There was still some residual anxiety around, but nevertheless, it is returning to normal. And if we compare again, us with New York, blue being New York, yellow being London, the same pattern emerging in New York as well. Six months after the events, the rates have dropped down, and we're getting back to the normal levels of stress in either London or New York City. And these, you know, there's quite a lot of stress around anyway, irrespective of terrorism. So stress is reducing, and uh, we look at uh, travel anxieties, things like that. Somewhat surprising, still quite a lot of people nervous about using the tube. We find this a little bit difficult to interpret because the numbers on the tube is now back to normal. In fact, it's higher than it was on July, just before July the 7th. So I'm not quite sure which, uh, is whether or not this is just a, uh, this is real reality or people's intentions. It certainly hasn't been reflected in passenger numbers. But still, it still indicates a degree of concern about travel, but perhaps not reflected in actual action. So we can say then, after terrorist events, disasters, trauma of any shape or form, distress normally reduces. Well, it does do so unless we get in the way. Now, how could that happen? Well, let's have a think. Now then, this is the crew of the Starship Enterprise, Starship, Star Trek, the new generation. Now, you may think that this is a work of science fiction, of no relevance at all to everyday life, but you would be wrong. This is an acutely observed social commentary on our times and culture. Let me show you why. Let's meet the crew, shall we? Here we go. There in the middle, there we have our captain, Jean-Luc Picard. He's a, what we now call he's a three-star. He's an admiral, in fact, so he's, he's the big cheese. He's in charge of the whole show. Next to him is 2IC, his second in command, Commander Riker. He's a, a one-star, so he's still very, very big, very important. Behind him, Lieutenant Worf, the tactical officer. Now, you will, of course, know Lieutenant Worf is a Klingon. Now, in the days when Star Trek was worth watching, when it had Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, the Klingons were our deadly enemy when we were growing up. Do you remember that, Frank? You do, you do. <laughs> Embarrassing. Okay, I remember. Anyway, now, of course, since then, since then, there's been the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and now the Klingons are our friends. So they're now back to, This is all about the kind of agenda of truth and reconciliation, etc. So there's, there's our Lieutenant Worf, the Klingon. There we've got the engineer. Now, he's obviously important because if you've got engines that push, uh, you know, you're going at twice the speed of light, which is what the starship does, someone has to know how the damn things work. So he's, he's clearly very important. He should be on the bridge. Next to him are three, three IC, third in command, Lieutenant Commander Data. Now, he's a bit of a pasty-looking fellow. That's because I think he's a clone. And again, the producers of Star Trek have not quite decided whether or not this is a good or a bad thing. And if it turns out that cloning actually leads to you know, GM food, cancer, and mass death, they'll be able to say, well, anyway, we never made him look healthy, so that's okay. He's also the security officer because he's there to keep an eye on the Klingon over there because although they're our friends, the Klingons, we still don't quite trust them. And recent events just mentioned Russians in London, and you will see exactly what I mean. But who 
is the lady. Who knows? No one? No. Who is it? No, no, no. Well, she's called Diana Kroll, and she comes from the planet Petersol. I'm not making this up, by the way. Well, I mean, I am. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm not. Someone made it up. Anyway, she can't. And those who know about Star Trek would know the inhabitants of the planet Beta Sol are famous for their empathy. That's what they're very good at. And she is the starship's counselor. That's her job. She's a humble lieutenant among all these one, two, and three stars, but she is an integral part of every episode. And towards the end of each episode, when things have gone wrong, as they always do, that they've, I don't know, eliminated the wrong planet or uh, run out of T-shirts or whatever the latest disaster is, she is there to make it all better. So she's there to counsel them and in particular to talk them through it, how did you feel, that kind of stuff. She carries out what is known as psychological debriefing. And during the 80s and 90s, this has become a major social movement. This is what I mean about this is actually a commentary on our times. And so it's a process that goes on. It's about um, after bad things have happened. You know, what, you, you know exactly the scenario I mean. There's been a terrible event. Trained counselors arrive. They carry out this thing called psychological, single session psychological debriefing. You get together. You talk about it. How is it for you? Uh, what are your emotions? How do you feel about it? These are the symptoms you've got and will get, and so on and so forth. This is, and this has now just become an accepted part of the theatre of disaster. Almost before the blue lights have stopped flashing, the trained counsellors will be there. Although I have to say, I, I, I've often thought about that word. Have you noticed, always on the media, it always says trained counsellors. Always. Every time. Never, never, ever heard it not referred to as trained counsellors. But that's a bit odd, because... When you go into hospital to have your appendix out, the chap doesn't say, hello, I'm your trained surgeon, does he? When you get on a British Airways flight, he doesn't say, hello, I'm your trained pilot. You think, bloody hell, I want to get off. You know, what's going on here? <laughs> I'm on Aeroflot or something. Anyway, and now why does that happen? Well, in fact, the reason it always says trained counsellors is because there's been quite a lot of research to show that indeed a large number of people who do this kind of psychological debriefing don't actually have formal psychological training. Hence, we have the phrase trained counsellor. And, and it's become, as I say, part of our times. This is just a newspaper search we did, just looking over a six-month period for as many instances we can find of the use of psychological debriefing. I'll be very clear, again, what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about post-traumatic psychological debriefing, so single-session counselling given to people who have been involved in unpleasant incidents. Okay? And it turns out, as I say, so not only do, do, do this is become very common, it turns out you don't even have to be human to do it at all. Uh, here you can see this is from the Sunday Times at a school in New York State. And you can see there a specially trained dog named Star. He's, oh, come on, come on, it's, it's a trained dog, so <laughs> no lapse of standards there then. Mm. But of course, this is actually, you know, I'm just making a cheap joke here, and it's terribly unfair, and we shouldn't give a dog a bad name, even a dog named Star, if he's doing, I assume it's a he, is Star a he? I don't know. If he's doing a good job. And now we have to get a little bit boring and serious because we do know the answer to that. There have now been over 15 randomized controlled trials in which we randomly allocate people to receive debriefing or not. And we know now for certainty that this does not work. This isn't one of the cases, you know, the jury is still out. No, it's not. The jury's come back. It's been sent home and banned from jury duty for five years. We know this does not work. And worse, worse, the two best studies, in fact, the three best studies now, with the longest follow-up, 
have shown that those who randomly received the debriefing were more likely to develop PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, than those who didn't. Without those trials, we would never have known this fact. But now we can say this psychological debriefing does not make you feel better, and it makes some people feel worse. And in particular, those who are most distressed, those who are most anxious, are the ones who are adversely affected by this procedure, and those are precisely the ones who we're most likely to give the treatment to. Why? Well, there are various reasons. We say it's good to talk. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. Perhaps just when you've had the major events of your life, it ain't a good time. It could be that it's too early. It just simply shakes you up for no good purpose. Most likely, it gets in the way of the natural. Because I said, normally, distress reduces anyway. So it just gets in the way of the natural processes. It starts a creeping thing of, wait a second, maybe there is something wrong with me after all. Maybe I'm developing a psychiatric and mental health problem. Why else would I be seeing a mental health professional? But most of all, I believe that I think it gets in the way of doing what comes naturally, which is talking to who you want or when you want at a time of your place and choosing. What did Londoners do after July the 7th? Going back to our random sample of 1,000 Londoners, yeah, everybody talked. I'm sure you did. I certainly did. We all did. And who did we talk to? We talked to our family, our friends, our colleagues, maybe our GP, our vicar, the people who knew us best, who knew us before, and will know us afterwards. And we did it a hell of a lot. Only 1% of us went for professional help, and only 1% of us thought we needed help. And that figure remained exactly the same six months later. So people like to talk after uh, uh, trauma. They do, but they talk within their own social circles. And it isn't just ordinary Londoners. This is a study we did now of tough soldiers. This is UK, uh, mainly people in the parachute regiment, coming back from a very nasty tour in Bosnia. And again, what you can see is, who did they want to talk to? Well, the ones who did, quite a lot of them don't, actually. And it's, you know, even if a paratroop guy doesn't want to talk, it's a good idea not to, not to make him. Anyway, what did they do? They wanted to talk to the folks who had been there, their family and friends. Not many of them wanted to talk to the people above them in the chain of command. Few wanted to talk to welfare. And only 1% wanted to talk to a psychiatrist, much the same as ordinary Londoners. So people want to talk, but they don't often want to talk to professionals, and nor should they. So people then, when we talk about communication, and politicians always talk about communicating with the public, I want to talk about people communicating with each other, because I think that's more important. It decreases anxiety, it prevents panic, and it does exactly what we want to do, which is to mobilize our own social networks and our own social support, because that's what provides us with true resilience against adversity, is our own social networks, not as that social networks by people we've never met before and will never meet again. So people want to talk, so we should help them do that, because when they can't, this again is back to London. This is people who couldn't get through on their mobile and were unable to discover if their family or friends were safe and they were more likely to be distressed and that persisted six months later. And we see the same in Israel. After every suicide bombing, there's a sudden surge in mobile traffic. If they get through and find that actually you know, the, the family are okay, people return to normal. But when they don't, they get very distressed and start kind of trying to go and find them, and all sorts of disorganization happens. And in Israel, kind of keeping the networks going is regarded as very important for public resilience and public confidence. And in Britain, it's regarded as an irritation. You know, they switch the networks off because uh, it gets in the way of the emergency services, which I don't believe. And we're hoping that gradually that policy will change because that itself 
is the thing that increases population uh, resilience. But we're losing the plot, is what I'm saying here. We've, we've over-professionalized distress. We've forgotten the natural way we cope. And look at this story. This was three weeks later now. This is the Stockwell shooting. This came up on the BBC website. It's only 40 minutes since the poor old Brazilian was shot. You can see the timing, 11.33. And this is, I don't know if anyone remembers this. I haven't got the video, unfortunately. This guy with a very broad Cockney accent. Tremendously good witness. He's saying this, you know, I saw an Asian guy. Okay, well, he's not that good a witness, but anyway. I saw an Asian guy. He ran onto the train, pursued by three officers. I've just basically, he's speaking very, very fast. I've just basically seen, I've seen a man shot dead. I've seen a man shot dead. I was distraught, totally distraught, less than five yards away from where I was sitting. I saw it with my own eyes. I got into the ticket hall. I was approached by a policeman, a London underground staff, asking me if I needed counselling. And then he started swearing, which they then cut off. But... But, you know, we've lost the plot, haven't we? We've lost the plot. I mean, it could have been worse, though. It could have been worse. I saw this a couple of weeks ago. Heather Mills McCartney is saying... Uh, I'll tell you why I like this story. I, I love it. It's that phrase. It's the second... It's not the first bit, OK? It's the second bit. She told reporters that she didn't want any publicity. I mean, you know, I don't understand these things, but I do understand that if you don't want publicity, you don't tell reporters. But there we go. What do I know? What do I know? Now... The problem is that this social movement has become very big business. It's around, it's now the kind of knee-jerk reaction that we have to trauma. We have the trained counsellors, we have the stress managers and so on. If something bad happens in a company, this is what happens. It's partly altruistic, I would believe it helps, but it doesn't. It's also partly to protect against litigation. And it's part of a, of a general thing that's happened in society that we have become more and more concerned about issues of what here we see, post-traumatic stress disorder, the hidden epidemic of modern times. From its beginnings after the Vietnam War, where it was used as a diagnosis for people uh, who developed psychiatric disorder after incidents in which they are in genuine fear of their life. It was, came from the military. That's how it developed. It has spread. And so everyone now has a supply of stupid stress stories, usually in the Daily Mail, um, to regale you with. And of course, uh, it would be a cheap act to show a few of those. So, of course, I will. <laughs> Here's one. Here we are, Daily Mail. There we are. Claim over, stewing over a spill pot of tea. Here's a dog. I've got it in for dogs today. <laughs> Hate them. Hate them. There's a dog with me. And here's my favorite. Here's my favorite, Daily Telegraph. A man suffers from epilepsy. He's been ordered to pay compensation to a student upset by his face during a seizure. Been paid three and a half thousand pounds to this woman for the mild post-traumatic stress that she suffered. There's no possible way you can say that Yvonne Rennie was in genuine fear of her life seeing someone have a fit. Now, that's all well and good, but there is a downside to this and a serious side. This was a man with a distorted face. This is a man with a very distorted face. This is Guardsman Simon Weston from the Welsh Guards, very seriously burnt at Bluff Cove in the Fortners in 1982. And he has spoken many times, I've never met him, I'm not revealing anything no one else knows, but he's spoken many times how the fact that his post-traumatic stress disorder, his PTSD, has proved more of a problem for him than his very obvious physical injuries. And the problem we have is that the inflation of stress and post-traumatic stress has devalued the stories like this, the stories of these people in real fear of their lives who have developed very serious very difficult psychiatric disorder. And so by, you know, Gordon Brown is always telling this, inflation leads to devaluation. And that's why I object to those, you know, I tripped over a paving stone, now I have PTSD stories, because they deflect attention and resource 
from this kind of story. So what should we do then? How can we bring this together? What is the best treatment and the best way to help people after disaster and terror strikes? Well, let's go back to the Blitz and the Public Record Office. Here we can see what they're saying is this. It's important to be there. The morale of the bombed largely depends on the care they get in the first 36 hours. But what was the care that they thought was important? I paraphrase slightly, but this is what that report went on to say. It was important to provide practical assistance, rest centres, facilities for children, information. People needed to know what had happened. Healthcare was important and the provision of food. And nothing much has changed since then. The real mental health measures, the ones that work in the immediate aftermath of trauma, are not asking how do you feel because the answer is crap. Okay? They're about real support, information, most important of all, what has happened, communication, I've just talked about, all the things that people need. They need to feel secure. They need to find out, where's my car? You know, how am I going to get home? How am my family going to get home? These practical things. And then if they've, really, you know, if they've been bereaved or, or, you know, and, and that kind of stuff, they're going to need practical, practical assistance with all the bureaucracy uh, that goes around accidents, trauma, disasters, and death these days. Those are the immediate mental health measures that work, and those are what we should be doing. There's no problem, of course, if people want to talk, fine. But we should be careful. We should not impose this on people. We should remember that, first of all, it should be when they want to do it. And all the evidence is, immediately after the greatest you know, shake-up and tragedy of your life is not the best time. It should be with who you want to talk to, preferably those who know you before and afterwards. So we can put this in the context of your life, if it's an organization, it should be people who are part of your organization, who understand you and your culture. And we should never forget there are people, my father's generation, for example, who don't want to talk, for whom reticence is more important than emotional expression. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. There's no correct way in dealing with these things. They come in fashions. And there's no reason to think that reticence is any better than emotional expression or any worse. It's doing what comes naturally. And we've set up a study with the Royal Navy to try and imp implement this on the ground. And what we've done is we've been training up the kind of the NCOs, the, 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 the various uh, people in the Navy. We've given them a couple of days course on very simple psychological skills and then sending them on their way. So that when bad things happen to them, as they do, they'll be able to manage this within their own culture. And it will facilitate the expression of distress if they wish, but not involving people like me, psychiatrists, professionals, and so on. And these are the new counsellors that we've trained. And, you know, these look a bit different, don't they? This is uh, RSM Kevin Green, seen just on the road to Basra in 2003. And here is Skid Dorney, currently in Afghanistan with the Grenadier Guards. You don't get more military than an RSM in the Grenadier Guards. You really don't, just trust me. And he's not a guy you'd like to meet on a dark night or indeed any night. But he's also now, in his way, a trained counsellor. And if bad things happen to them in, in Afghanistan, God forbid... He will be there to help them within his own culture with people he understands who understand him. In other words, not me. So then, what's to conclude? First of all, the bombs themselves have created many victims. I've moved away from what happened to those people in those trains, but of course, you know, the bomb did its work and there are people with physical and psychiatric disabilities. But it's important that we don't make things worse for the rest of us and that we don't confuse the differences between being upset, which happens to most of us, and developing uh, psychiatric disorders where we cannot earn our living, we cannot look after our family, where we, are, you know, where we have a serious psychiatric disorder, which happens to few. 
It is a mistake to waste our money on ineffective and indeed counterproductive treatments which we give to the majority of people who are going to get better anyway. That's what debriefing is. And what also happens is that diverts resources away from the small numbers of people who are not getting better for whom we actually do have treatments that do work. And the problem we have at the moment is we're doing too much of the former and not enough of the latter. And in the NICE guidelines for PTSD, that is exactly now what they say. We have the policy of watchful waiting, wait two or three months. Most people who are distressed will be better. Those who are not, we then treat. And around 20 to 25% of the direct victims of the London bombings have now been helped in that way. And that's probably a much more sensible use of resources than what has previously happened. My second conclusion, though, is takes us back to the beginning. It is, we have lost sight of the fact that people are rather more resilient and resourceful than we've tended to think about them. And if we go back to the Blitz now, this is the 8th of March, 1945. This is the VE attack on Smithfield Market that killed 135 people. The Blitz, the terror of London, lasted for the whole six years. Right at the end, death was just as common, well, not quite just as common, but certainly less predictable, in a way more anxiety-provoking than it had been at the beginning. And yet, despite all those years of trauma and death, over 35,000 civilians killed, there's little doubt that the conclusion that we began with remains the case. Said uh, the negative features emphasizes a very modern history by, by revision historians, although indisputably present, it wasn't all plain sailing, there were bad things that happened, was not on such a scale to invalidate the orthodox picture of a people who became actively committed to the project their leaders put before them. The lows did not last for long and were more than outweighed by the highs. Now, why was that? And it's the middle sentence there that gives us the context. The orthodox picture of a people who became actively committed to the project their leaders put before them. That's a bit of the picture I've missed out. By 1944, 80% of the civilian population were actively engaged in the war effort. They knew why they were there. They knew what they were doing. They knew that, that why they had been asked to accept that ris the risk and adversity and hardship that they were. And not only did they know why and what the purpose was, they also were playing in a small way a part in overcoming that. And that's the problem we face now. That's the problem we face, because it's very difficult for us to know what is our role as we face the modern sources of terror. How can we show bravery and resilience? It's difficult. We're there just to be victims, perhaps. Or if the most brave thing we can do is go through and be humiliated in an American airport, it's not a particularly courageous act. That's the real challenge we face. People will show resilience and accept hardship in the face of danger, but only and only if they feel there's a purpose and meaning to do so. And that's the bit we currently miss. Thank you very much. Mm. Yeah, sure, whatever you want, yeah. Okay. Well, um, obviously, mm. everyone's enjoyed this, and... Um, Professor Wesley's given us some few minutes. In fact, he gives us about 10 minutes for questions. And the usual rule is that without a microphone, um, you can't speak. And I will see if I'm keeping order. The people can. There's a lady at the back, first of all. Um, right at the very back, Jeff. And then a gentleman there. So I've got three people in order. Yes. Oh, thanks. I've got a mic here. Yeah. I feel at the moment that we're not being told enough about the radiation and how it spreads and what anybody can do, and should we be scared about it? 
Well, <laughs> do, you want, do you want to take more questions, or should we I'll pick that one? Sorry, yeah. I think I can do a one-off one. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a radiation specialist, it's very obvious. I'm a psychiatrist, so I don't know. I'm, the, 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 we've already been doing some work with the Home Office and the Health Protection Agency, which suggests that, that, on the whole, most people do seem reasonably reassured by what they've been told. There's been little evidence from things like NHS Direct or um, uh, casualties of a lot of people turning up um, concerned or worried about radiation exposure. Many of the people who are ringing NHS Direct are doing so precisely only because they've been told to do so. So they ring up because they've been British Airways rather stupidly told 30,000 people suddenly to ring NHS Direct when they weren't really at risk. So a lot of them are saying, well, I don't know why I'm ringing. I'm perfectly okay about it, but I've been told to. And there's a danger that we kind of create the thing we're most scared of, which is anxious people by actually over, overestimating things. So I don't know. Nobody knows how this story will unfold. But everything that we've seen so far doesn't suggest uh, a great deal of public anxiety. Now, that could be because this wasn't terrorism. This was a, a rather juicy John le Carré murder. And it, you know, the effect on us is, 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 was not intended. This wasn't an, a, an attempt to scare a population. It could be that people understand the risk from this particular particle is very low, or perhaps people trust the scientists more than we've been led to believe. You know, when they're told by Pat Troop that actually the risk is very low, they believe her. We don't know, and that's one of the things we're looking at. But we haven't yet seen a signs of increasing anxiety on this issue. But who knows what tomorrow will bring? How international do you think your conclusions and findings <laughs> are? And how significant, if at all, is the British character? For example, the World War II London Can Take It film portrayed the British, even if flatteringly, for an American public, as you said. And you also showed a, a slide comparing a reaction of Americans after the World Trade bombing and the British after the perhaps importantly later, London bombings. Uh, okay. Well, I think there's two, two things there. First, um, it is a difficult thing to say, but if there had been a film made called Berlin Can Take It in 1943, it would have been exactly the same. It would have been exactly the same. And what, one of the great mysteries of history is why, having shown that the original estimates that we made of civilian morale and population were so wrong in London and our estimates, we then felt it would be completely different in Germany. And there's quite a lot of interesting documentation of people saying that the Germans are, dif are different. They're different, and particularly if you hit their leaders, they won't know what to do. All they do is obey orders, and all you have to do is you know, knock out a few of the guy lighters, and the whole thing will collapse. That's, that's actually there. That, that's, the, that, that's in the documentation. Now, that didn't happen either. And, it's, and so I don't think this is about the British character. I think this is, again, about populations uh, under adversity when they understand why and when they share a common purpose. The data from Israel, which you remember has suffered far, far more from terrorism than anyone else. If, if you took the population of, of Israel and you extrapolate to America, um, it would be the equivalent in America of half a million people being killed by terrorism uh, in the last, since 9-11. So it's a huge thing. But the data for Israel is very similar. There's been a rise in psychiatric disorder, a small rise. There's also been a, a rise in other measures of resilience. So I don't think we can, we can take the, the, the tribute for British character. There is one exception, which is, of course, the US, and one has to comment on this. Rates of disorder have gone up again in New York City. They've been steadily rising since 2002. We don't know why. It's an odd thing, because it shouldn't be. 
but it might be related to the fact they've spent $170 million on post-traumatic counselling. The largest single public mental health initiative ever taken, Project Liberty, has counselled 90% of New York City school children and 50% of New York City adults. Now, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. It's impossible to say. I don't know. It certainly hasn't done them any good. First of all, I want to say thank you for a really remarkable... Oh, good. You can come I've again. En <laughs> I've enjoyed it tremendously. Right. But what I, a, trivia, a trivia question. Do you know the background of the man you first showed? Uh, what did you call him? Hastings Ismay. General Ismay. Yes. You're going to tell me. No, no I don't. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I was hoping you're going to tell me. Well, he was, he was a career Sandhurst officer. He yes. was a very political general. Was he English? Oh, yes. Yes, very was English. was he British? Oh, um, you know, I don't know. He was, he was Churchill's favourite general, so um, he was the one who always got on with Churchill, he and Alan Brooke, and uh, he was very skillful politically, hence if, he became the secretary general. If he were English, and I'm being prejudiced, <laughs> Well, I don't know. Um, he wasn't, I use him as an example, but I'd like to say he was not, not only was he not alone, every single person who worried about, who was in charge of civil defence, from the doctors to the politicians to the generals, all said the same thing. So, and many of them must have been English. So it was axiomatic in 39 that bombing would destroy civilian morale. That was a standard view. I've never found anyone who said the opposite. Sorry, it's a continuation of yeah. Well, uh, on this, surely, um, at the beginning of the war, there was uh, thought that the uh, casualties would be far higher. Yes. There's going to be uh, mass graves, uh, there was an argument by the coffins, uh, so surely that is one of the reasons that if uh, the bombing had been like that, uh, you may have had a, well, a breakdown. Well, yes and no. I mean, you're right. They, they did have enormous uh, preparations for huge physical casualties. And that, as I said, he estimated be 600,000 would be killed. But of course, in Germany, that did come about. I mean, I think it's is it over, over a million German civilians are killed in strategic bombing. And there were, again, incidents of complete civic breakdown after Hamburg, for example, in 43. But again, in general, even where the scale of casualties was 10 times higher than in London, there was not a breakdown in law and order or a collapse of civilian morale. And indeed, um, the, the, the war effort, pro pro production, rose steadily and was its highest in the beginning of 1945. So I, I take your point, but it still didn't reflect a, a, a breakdown in, in morale. Yes, may I just ask, thank you for the very um, excellent lecture. Why, in your view, are some people more courageous than others I know there are many variables, it's uh, similar to chemists, and secondly, a little bit off as such, um, I know some of the prisoners of war, uh, poor men, Japanese prisoners of war, who have never got over sure. what they have suffered. I met them uh, last mm. year, Charing Cross Station, so on. They've never, never got over it. So in other words, you can suffer uh, a traumatic stress and never recover in a way. What do you say? Well, I, you I'll, I'll pass on your first question. I mean, I'm a psychiatrist. I deal with, with breakdown, and, I, and I'm also the psychiatrist of the army, but I don't deal... Issues of courage are for them, and I think people who you know, haven't been there 
and don't, should, should not really make observations on what is it that makes someone do something remarkable. I feel much more comfortable with your second question, which is the Far East prisons of war. There's no doubt at all that the Far East prisons of war, uh, first of all, were exposed to privation on a scale that is barely imaginable. We're not talking about a one-off incident. We're talking about four years in which uh, a third of them die. We also forget that um, their physical health was also dreadful, and it was about 20 or 30 years that actually they were ever screened, and huge amounts of you know, tropical diseases were picked up. And second, their treatment was also shameful. There's no question at all this was not our finest hour, and the treatment of the FIPOs remains, I think, a, a scar on, on, on the national honor, because they were regarded as, you know, after the fall of Singapore, they were associated with failure. And so they, they received virtually nothing until much, much later in life of either physical or psychiatric treatment. But I'm not sure how relevant that is to what we're talking about now. That scale of deprivation, fear, horror, is, is, is something well out of the ordinary context of modern life. And I've not met very many people who've had anything. I suppose the equivalent would be concentration camps, things like that. Not met many people who've experienced similar levels of deprivation. But your, your point is also a good one. It's not um, anything, the treatment of the FIPOs is not anything we should feel proud about. Have you put um, any of your points to the trained counsellors? <laughs> if so, what have they well, said? Well, yes, I did. I did. I went to, I was invited to the British Association of Counselling. I'm a brave guy, as you can see, that's courage. But no, they were fine about it. They, they thought it was fine because, of course, I'm talking about um, psychological debriefing and, and they all said, well, we don't do that and that I'm talking about bad counselling, and they do good counselling. So they were fine about it, really. And I, I do, again, I did make the point, I'm talking about something very specific. I'm not talking about marital counselling, I'm not talking about all the various other, and I'm, and I'm trained in psychotherapy myself. I'm completely in favour of psychological treatments. I'm talking about treating, or trying to treat, normal people who've been exposed to adversity immediately afterwards with a single session of emotional ventilation. That's, that's what debriefing is. And that's the thing where the evidence is overwhelmingly against. The evidence for marital counselling is very strong. The evidence for the psychological treatment of trauma, cognitive behaviour therapy, is overwhelming. So I'm not in any way against talking dreams. I'm against bad ones given to the wrong people at the wrong time for the wrong reason. Uh, Professor Wesley, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your lecture, apart from the scurrilous attack on dogs. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Which Willis. Which I thought was most uncalled for. However, <laughs> putting that to one side, um, the, the world has got a great deal more litigious because it profits lawyers to create litigation. You'd be a dog uh, owner, would you, you've, Mr. Uh, <laughs> you've suggested <laughs> that, in fact, the medical profession has a great deal to answer for because they seem to me to have created employment for themselves in pursuing a whole range of unnecessary psychological conditions. And the remark you made about the number of people treated in New York, the huge percentage of children counselled unnecessarily, how far wide of the mark is that very simple conclusion? Let's stick with dogs, shall we? No. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not, I think it's slightly unfair to include the medical profession in this, not just because I'm one and you're married to one. Uh, but it's a much, much broader thing than that. Uh, it, it's, uh, and, 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 I and I think also to ascribe it to purely financial motives is also doing a little bit of a disservice to these people because most of the people doing it do so because they think they're doing a good job. You wouldn't do it if you weren't. So I think greed plays a lesser part of it. I, would, I prefer to say naivety and an over-optimism, uh, um, a kind of over-optimistic view that we can make bad things uh, 
better. I think that's a, 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 bigger, um, um, a bigger motive. And I think the other motive as well, which you've not mentioned, is the role the media play, because nobody likes to see suffering. And there's some of the interviews with the survivors or the families of the London bomb, the interview with the, the father and grandfather of Shahar Islam, the, the bank worker who was killed in the bomb, on that night, they showed it was rather intrusive. And you saw grief that was virtually unbearable to watch. And we don't like that. We want to make it better. But we can't. You can't make that better. You know, it hurts. And there's nothing much we can do about it. And in our modern age, we don't like that. And I think it comes down for the belief that something must be done. We're seeing people suffering. And it's a, a noble motive to want to help people. But that in itself is not enough. So I was going to ask, if traditionally we've considered conflict between state actors, for example, uh, you might well argue that, for example, in the Blitz, we were facing an adversary who had a certain moral standard. Is there any evidence, for example, Israeli, I don't know, um, that would suggest what the impact is of facing an adversary now in asymmetric warfare where they don't have that survival instinct? Mm. You talk like one of our war study students. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the point, and it does, it's that last point, that, that it is important to feel that you're part of a cause and to know what the adversary is. You, I think you mentioned Israel, though, and whatever else you think about Israel, there's no question, plenty of studies have shown Israelis feel exactly the same thing. They feel a very strong sense of adversity. They feel a very strong sense of knowing uh, who the enemy is, and a very strong sense of resilience and common purpose. Now, you may not share that, but that's, you know, lots of, of evidence from Israel has shown that. Facing, I, and I also said that's the challenge of a kind of the so-called nonsensical war on terror, is, you know, you, a war on an emotion is a very, very difficult one to visualize and a very difficult one to mobilize population resources for. And I, th I think that is the challenge we face. And I, I don't, if you ask to have a solution, no, I certainly don't. Thank you very okay, much, Simon. Good. We've now I'll reached talk. 7 o'clock. Um, the last time I chaired a meeting which you spoke was at the Royal Society of Tropical Medicine some years ago, and it was about Gulf War syndrome. And what a lot of us were absolutely scared, witless about, was that we had actually caused this, um, because we knew from work that had been done that what has now become known as the cytokine storm um, was going to exist. And if you got the wrong vaccines together or the wrong people, it was going to happen. Um, I must say, Simon, we went off to the pub afterwards absolutely <laughs> relieved um, when you told us, in fact, there was a perfectly common explanation, an easy explanation for everything that had gone on. And tonight has been exactly the same. I think a lot of us knew what Simon was going to say, but I think a lot of us had been hoodwinked into believing we didn't know that. And I think what is important this afternoon is that you have actually drawn our attention um, to um, what really happens in the real world. Um, my laboratories, as you know, are just off Russell Square. Um, what amazed me were the number of people who telephoned me from all over the world within the next hour or so. They were concerned about me. All I was concerned about was would I get home on time um, without having to fight my way back, and the same with like most of us. And I think most of us would have behaved in the same way. Um, and you have reassured us, in fact, that we are all um, normal. So thank you very much indeed for a wonderful talk. Thank you. No, thanks, right. Right, thanks. thanks very much. Um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.